The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now, your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here today with my friend Fergal McGovern, the CEO of Visible Thread. Fergal, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks very much. Great to be here, Mark. For those who don't know you, uh, Visible Thread is is approaching 16 now. Uh, Give us a little of your background and why you started Visible Thread, please. Sure. So I'm a little long in the tooth at this point. Uh, It's getting over 30 years uh, building systems and writing uh, products and kind of, you know, selling stuff into situations. But basically, first part of my career, I I guess I look at it in, in thirds. So the first third was kind of working primarily in the U.S., uh, working with multinationals, primarily people like Bank of Montreal, um, Dell Computer in Austin, Texas. And that was really kind of helping to build out systems. Uh, back in those days, it was a lot of client-server systems. Uh, I was doing a lot of architecture, a lot of business analysis, and kind of designing systems. Then I proceeded to kind of dip my toe in the entrepreneurial world. Uh, in 2001, I started a company called Steel Trace. It was in the requirements management space. And really the inception of that was to address some problems that I had seen in the first part of my career. That had a pretty decent exit uh, in 2006. And then from that, I was kind of working with the acquiring company. And then I started uh, Visible Thread in 2008, 2009. So as you say, 16 years. So it's, it's quite a while. Um, the inception, the rationale for what Visible Thread was about in, in day one was really to address a problem that was extremely kind of visceral in in my world. And that was the challenge that I saw most people have, which is manual searching for kind of risky content in important documents, you know, Word documents, PDFs, Excel. Uh, So the intent and the inception point for Visible Thread was let's shine a light in risky content and let's figure out a better and faster way that people can identify risk and mitigate risk so move from control F, as in search, to a much more audit, autom- automated excuse me, uh, way to address that issue. Okay, so ergo the name. You're looking for those visible threads to connect things. 100%. Very cool. We probably met back in the teens when I was speaking. Prior to the pandemic, I was speaking at APMP's uh, uh, National Capital Conference every fall. Uh, for mm-hmm. 10 or 11 years running. Um, and we probably met there because that's that's your normal stomping ground. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. And I think we, we started attending APMP got, uh, 2011 in Denver, Colorado. We may well have met there or in subsequent APMPs. Uh, no, that would be the national conference. I only spoke no, at, the, uh, at the DC uh, chapter. Okay. But where does Visible Thread now fit in the proposal ecosystem? Sure. So our products, uh, basically we have two types of products, one which is to help the review uh, side of things. So in that context, from a proposal management standpoint, uh, identifying requirements and that you need to be compliant with is something that we do uh, very well. So we help capture people, identify risky areas that they need to keep in head of. 
uh, we identify the same type of stuff for contract folks, um, as well as, of course, proposal management, uh, you know, book bosses, uh, coordinators, and so forth as well. The second part of what we do is help the writing side of life. So we help proposal managers effectively ensure that they have a single tone of voice, and that's our VT Writer product that helps that. Okay, so that that's a different slant, I think, from most of the uh, consulting companies that help contractors win business. Do you find that you're competing with those other proposal companies, or are you not really competitive with, but blend with? I think it's really the latter. Uh, mostly, you know, humans and our ability to derive insights is really, really important. What we do is that we eliminate the tedious work around, you know, let's say searching through or kind of slicing up a an RFP such that you can manage the proposal process with a compliance matrix. That would be one of our strengths. So why spend, you know, five, 10 hours manually copying and pasting content when you can just delegate that to automation? And then the proposal shops, you know, people like the Shipleys and Lofels of this world can help, um, kind of, you know, elevate the analytical side so the human beings can do what human beings are best at doing. So rather than doing tedious work all day long, let's unblock that and let's allow humans do more important and interesting work. Okay. We're going to spend some time talking about AI today. And um, one of the reasons you're here is you invited me to the Visible Thread Summit last fall. And I didn't stay the whole day, but I stayed through your talk, which blended in. Uh, and and again, going back almost six months now, right? Um, sure. We're further down the road with AI being a significant part of the ecosystem. But you were talking about it in ways that, that made a tremendous amount of sense to me. Where does AI fit in? in the VT, in the visible thread tool box? Yeah, it's 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 such a huge topic. So I guess the first thing I, I'm saying these days, uh, I'm not sure if I said it uh, when we met in, in um, October, November timeframe, but AI is not generative AI. So this new form of AI, generative AI, is, is just simply a type of AI. AI itself as a discipline has been around for 30, 40 years, and, and we all use it on a daily basis. If you use Netflix and recommendations, that's an AI engine behind that. But this form of AI is generative AI. So as we think about it, what I think is very clear now is that people are becoming more aware of the security implications around gen AI in the sense that everything changes and nothing changes. So gen AI as a technology stack is very new. It's generative. It generates content. But the nothing changes bit of that equation is that your chief information security officer still requires you to not allow proprietary or important data to go outside of your firewall. And that then has an implication as to whether or not you will equip and allow your people to use things like ChatGBT, which is hosted in the public cloud. So security and the need to protect data was evident is becoming more clear for senior leadership and that's really important so we see more and more a situation where um, companies and organizations are looking at deploying large language models which are the engine 
of generative AI behind the firewall. And there's multiple ways in which you can do that. And there's multiple very capable, very good models by which you can do that. From a product standpoint, that is uh, incumbent upon the product vendors to facilitate deploying behind the firewall. So that's a really important point, the security side. I think there's a ways to go, but people are beginning to understand the fundamental reality of generative AI as a concept. It gets a little bit techy, but it's a predictive technology. And you presumably, Mark, have heard the, the term hallucination. Everybody has. But hallucination. I, I first heard it at your conference. Okay. <laughs> your okay cool. Well, let me, let me back up a little bit. There's a couple of questions people need to ask themselves when they think about whether generative AI is suitable for a certain job. If let's, you need let, let's take a Sorry. break and pick this sure. up after the break. All right. Sure. All right. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'll have Fergal continue this conversation right after this break. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Fergal McGovern of Visible Thread. You can find Fergal on LinkedIn or at visiblethread.com, and you can continue now. So if you're looking at generative AI, you almost have to look at the problem that you're trying to solve. If your problem space it requires 100% accuracy in the result and requires 100% repeatability in the result, then you should not use generative AI. And that's a stark statement. So what does 100% accuracy mean? It means you get the same result every time. If I say to you, you know, what's two plus two? You say it's four. It can never not be four. It can never be 3.8 on one day and 4.2 on a different day. It has to be four. So that type of computing model is called a deterministic model. And that is not what generative AI is. You cannot reliably repeat the same result. So that's a really important point. And that kind of directly tells us where we get hallucinations from. The same result, you won't get it every time. So you need to actually assess what the problem is you're trying to solve. And I think there's a growing awareness of that. We, we're talking quite a bit to C-suite and, and executives and uh, our customers and elsewhere. And that directly informs how we extend our own product line, our review product, as well as our writing uh, assistant product. Okay. Let's go back to the security side, because one of the sure. things that I hear constantly, and I think the government's addressing this as well, is what what kinds of information do you want to put out there to generate your your proposal, and where does it reside, and how how safe really is it boy it's a huge question um okay let's let's come back to the core generative ai as a technology and let me unpack it a little bit because i think it'll help it'll be helpful Please. how it works is that it is a very large model that is predicting the next logical word or technically it's called tokens but they're basically words so I've been using this analogy recently, and let's try this one for a size, see if it works. So when I say to you, Mark, Jack and Jill, what do you think? What comes next? Run up the hill. Correct. I talked to somebody last week. They said, ran up the hill. I talked to somebody last week, a different call, and they said, Jack and Jill is a nonprofit organization for helping 
kids in trouble. Okay, it's also a clothing brand. So all of those inferences, if you will, or all of those predictions about what comes next are based upon our respective collective, you know, kind of model, if you will, equating the model to our brain or our experiences. So a large language model is a bit like this. I'm not, by the way, making an analogy between our brain and a large language model, but it predicts what's going to come next. So you begin to see the problem immediately. You cannot assume that it will be factually correct because who is right? Is it a charitable organization, Jack and Jill? Correct. But is it ran up the hill? Correct. Or went up the hill? Correct. But each model's definition of correctness and the ability to actually predict that is dependent on the training data in the model. And then we get into ethical considerations about, well, if the model is trained, most of these models now are very, very much, you know, it's a kind of a race to the bottom. They're all trained on all of the internet content. And a lot of that content is of poor quality from a kind of a accuracy standpoint, or may have inherent bias or may have inherent issues around factual correctness. So what comes back is not an intelligent, it's intelligent sounding, but it's not an intelligent thing. What comes back is simply the likely next word in the sequence of words. This is as we think about large language models, uh, when you think about text and text generation. It's the same thing for images and image filling. Uh, Adobe Photoshop, for instance, have a, has a kind of a gener generative fill capacity where you circle and kind of redline a part of your picture and you say, you know, swap that out and change it for a mountain background. And it will generatively create content. So the core idea of the technology is a predictive, generative-focused approach, hence the name generative AI. So when you think about submitting content and saying, okay, now I want an accurate answer, I want a 100% compliant answer in the world of proposals, you begin to see the challenge. So on its own, it's very good at certain things, like creating first drafts of content. You know, create me an outline or create me a first draft outline, but it's a draft and it will not necessarily be right. What you as a user have to do is make an assessment or judgment and then use your human skills. And this kind of ties into the earlier question, you know, the Lofos and the Shipleys of this world and all of us as human beings are not out of a job. We are simply getting to an endpoint a little bit faster. And it's almost like the tyranny of the blank page is removed. So now you have something to start with. But I would be very, very careful trusting anything that comes back from a large language model. You have to verify everything that comes back. And there are techniques for doing that. Um, there's a very common pattern called RAG, Retrieval Augmented Generation, which allows you combine your content that is proprietary to you with the core mechanics of the large language model, which is the engine of Gen AI, and it then influences the output. But it's still prone to hallucinations. So the, the core, uh, unfortunately, it is a, quite a technical area. The core value of Gen AI is largely in the create use cases, but I would never use it for accurate results. I would use it in combination with a quote-unquote accurate computing model in that context. Okay. I don't know if you've seen the same thing that I have seen, but I've been approached over the last three months or so 
by no fewer than a dozen companies that have AI-driven proposal tools, some claiming to be end-to-end. So Mm -hmm. it'll identify the RFP and then generate a full proposal for you. I think probably the most intelligent model I've seen thus far is one where you plug in what you find and it'll, it'll take you to a pink team type review. So you're at the kind of the go, no go situation. I I liked that one a little bit, but the thing that, that struck me most was every one of these things was driven by private equity, usually in Silicon Valley and they're using the the principles of the company are people without any appreciable or noticeable background in government contracting. They're they're data jockeys, and I don't doubt that they're bright, but my question to you is how valid could a tool be that's created by someone who's never played the game? Wow, there's a lot of name and name, so yeah, it doesn't yeah. matter. Let's let's go for the throat. <laughs> okay, well the problem right now is that if you slap a dot AI onto your domain name, you can raise large chunks of venture capital. You know, the whole the whole SaaS VC industry is pretty much on the floor except for the AI side of things. So if you kind of AI wash your position, in other words, you make yourself an AI company. There are certain VCs that will uh, be quite open with a checkbook. Uh, probably not with a checkbook. That's old-fashioned, but whatever. You get the point. Yeah. Let's just say I'm very judicious about these claims, irrespective of whether they know the rules of the game or not. And the reason I'm judicious is that, quite honestly, you know, as a two-time entrepreneur going back to 2001 when I started my first company, it takes a lot of sweat engineering sweat and tears to build a decent quote-unquote product in the first instance. V1 of the first product for many companies is always pretty crappy, including our own. So you have to be very judicious about this. And most of the companies that I've seen certainly in the last, that have started in the last two to three years won't have had time to build the non-glamorous parts of the software. Let's put AI aside completely user management, workspace management, reliable credential management, single sign-on. There's a whole bunch of things that go into the modern software uh, stack. And most products today are a combination of standard, again, I'll use the word deterministic software, meaning I run a command, I get one and only one output. It's repeatable. It always is accurate. It's always 100% repeatable. And there's a logic. I can figure out how it got to its result. That's deterministic software. That's not how Gen AI works. So when Gen AI first vendors, in other words, whether they're completely predicated on the idea of Gen AI as being the, the silver bullet or the solve for any of the world's problems, when they come along, they haven't simply had the time to build the unglamorous, you know, how do we deploy this? Will we deploy it to five or seven different environments? Will it run in a Windows box? Will it run in Red Hat, for instance? If it has to be running with PII, privately or personally identifiable data, or highly secure data in SCIFs or CUI, any of these things, most of them are over-promising and will under-deliver because they don't understand the fundamentals about the government contracting space. We've been swimming in these waters for 15 plus years. We understand that if we didn't have an ability to easily integrate our software into our customers' environments, 
11 of the top 15 government contractors, for instance, we would be on the floor. We would be dead. And that requires very easy, non-friction way of deploying our software behind the firewall. So having built all this stuff and having spent 15 years building this stuff, I know that it's really hard to do. And I know there's plenty of barriers. So I think uh, it will be interesting, quite aside from the fact whether they know the space or not, they, they don't know the space, therefore they underestimate the difficulty that they will have with IT teams supporting this if they wish to support situations where there is important content flowing around. Now, if we get to the idea of, is GNI going to solve all the worst problems and is it suitable for all use cases? The answer is absolutely a categoric no on that. It is not. If I want to accurately search for indemnification clauses or you know, search documents or collections of documents and I expect GenAI to give me an accurate response, I'm going to be sorely mistaken. So even getting people as far as Pink Team is a bit of a reach, a bit of an overstretch from my standpoint. It will help certain areas. It will speed up certain areas. But I've seen a vendor claim that they can shred a document immediately. That is a deterministic approach, taking a Microsoft Word document and splitting it out and creating a basic starter position for a compliance matrix in Excel. That's not GenAI. GenAI can't do that. And it can't do it in a repeated way. That has got to be old, not old, but you know, a computational model, which is accurate and reliable and will work every time. So there is a kind of a, an overstated uh, set of things that these product companies are, are claiming. And I don't blame them. I mean, they're doing their architecture stuff and they're you know, trying to get off the ground and that's fair enough. And they raise a lot of money from VCs and they've got some you know, board members that are putting pressure on them to get deals. We shall see how it plays out. We shall indeed. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'll be back with Fergal McGovern of Visible Thread right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Fergal McGovern of Visible Thread. You can find Fergal on LinkedIn or at visiblethread, all one word, dot com. Uh, I suggest you do so. Uh, next time he speaks, try to get out to uh, see him if you're in the vicinity as well. It's always uh, an informational and entertaining uh, presentation. Uh, so there's right and wrong things to apply to Gen AI. You have a two-question test. Could you get into that a little bit, please? Sure. And, and it's a really simple test that... In fact, there's a third question that can be very useful in certain circumstances. So the first question is, do you need 100% accuracy in the result where you're applying generative AI to? And if the answer to that is no, you cannot use generative AI on its own. So to be clear, 100% accurate, what would that mean in our world? I ask um, the model, Gen AI, to find me all the occurrences of certain phrases or certain words across a set of documents. And it must be 100% accurate and it must be the same every time. So if it does not return an accurate result, which it won't, it will return a best guess and approximate result. It may be over or under uh, in terms of what it delivers. Then that is a no for generative AI. Use alternative approaches. Use regular pattern matching for search. Don't use Gen AI. The second one, which is slightly related, is 
can I repeatedly use this today, tomorrow for hundreds, if not thousands, if not millions of times? And will I get the same result? So if you ever try, for instance, in ChatGPT, saying to uh, the prompt or putting in a prompt, you know, give me the history of Armenia, Armenia from, I'm just randomly picking a country uh, from 1920 to 1940, whatever it might be, or the history of any uh, thing or, or any question. If I run it today, I run it in 10 minutes time, I will get different results. So it's not repeatable because it's generating the actual next word and next content based on its um, architecture, basically, which is a tr transformer based architecture. So they're the two big questions. And that's okay to say no, because what I see happening more and more is that regular products are integrating generative AI for jobs that are suitable to use generative AI for. So for instance, in our own case, we have a product called VT Writer. VT Writer accurately scores the content for complexity. So it'll break out paragraphs and it'll say, well, that paragraph has a grade level, which is a proxy for complexity of 21.2. That's not using generative AI. And then when you focus in on the thing that needs to be fixed, the paragraph, the 47 word paragraph, which is dense and turgid and not very engaging, then we can say to the large language model, okay, give me three different ways to rephrase this in a simpler fashion. Prioritize short sentences over long sentence. Try to use active voice over passive voice. Here's an example of active voice. Here's an example of passive voice. That's your prompt. And the prompt needs to be quite comprehensive to get a good answer, a good enough answer. So in that context, that's using the LLM, the large language model, which is the engine of AI or generative AI for the job that it's good at doing. The bit that says, the grade level is complex, it's 22.2, that's not generative AI. So you're kind of using a combination of technologies for the task. And if you know exactly the task you're trying to automate, then you'll have a much better chance of actually deploying the right technology for the right parts of it. Okay, how difficult is it to learn how to prompt the tool? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very good one. I think it is, for certain people, it's not that difficult. Um, but the problem with prompting is that people who are good at prompting are probably going to be more or less in the same bell curve that are good at any skill, any new skill. They'll adapt easily and they'll kind of absorb that. So there's a little bit of logic involved. So they need to have some logical capacity. There's a little bit of art in it. It's a bit like when Google appeared in the scene back in the day, uh, Alta Vista and Yahoo were the search mechanisms. It took a little while for people to get good at searching. Prompt engineering is the same thing. And in fact, that's the discipline name. They're calling it prompt engineering, uh, which gives you a hint as to that question and what the right answer. So I think there's a problem in the enterprise where you've got collections of human beings. You can't assume that everybody will be very good at prompt, at creating good and effective prompts. And a lot of the value in prompts is actually not the first prompt. The first prompt that gets you to a certain result. It's actually evolving that. So you iterate on that first prompt. You say, okay, give me, you know, results to a question. So, you know, give, give me the, the best way to structure a program uh, plan, for instance, a program management plan or a risk plan. Then you say, well, that, that's great, but can you give me three better ways to do that? It'll come back with an iterative better way. 
but it's generating fresh content every time, but it gets contextualized by the, the prompt and the progression of prompt. So you're, you're training the tool to come back to you with something closer to what you want. Is that accurate? Effectively, yes. And we have to be careful with the word training because that means something else in the world of AI. Uh, but effectively, that's exactly what you're doing. You're, you're helping it understand. There are a lot of tricks around prompts. You basically you know, say, you tell it who it is. You tell it, okay, you're an expert copy editor. Uh, I want you to create punchy, directed copy that will be engaging for this task. My task is I want to create an executive summary for a government contract, and the government contract is, you know, a type of government contract, a task order, an IDIQ, whatever it might be. So you're really, really focusing in and giving it the best possible chance of giving you a decent answer. When it gives you that answer, you're then saying, well, that's okay, but I'd like you to be a little bit more punchy, or can you, you know, reduce it down to 300 words because that is what my page or my, my, my word count is. And you're kind of evolving the result as you go. Cool. Um, so can you capsulize what the difference in actually training means here? Sure. So, and, and this isn't specific to uh, generative AI, it's all AI. So every AI works on the premise of a model. Uh, the models uh, in generative AI happen to be extremely large. That's why they're called large language models. They're, they're massive things. But all AI is like this. So the AI, for instance, that we use in VT Docs, our review product, we've been using that for 13 years. So it's a model. When you deploy a model, you train the model before you deploy it. So you train it basically to understand the inferences it makes. And in the context of the large language models out there, the training data that goes into most of the large language models, the common ones that we're all familiar with, is the entire body of knowledge in the internet. And there's additional training data that goes into more specialized models. For instance, Bloomberg have their own model, and that's trained on their additional proprietary data set. So the data sets are really important when it comes to large language models and indeed any AI model. Okay, thank you. Uh, I am a, uh, a very raw novice at all this stuff, so I, I appreciate the explanation in terms that I understand. Uh, we're going to take our last break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. Fergal and I will wrap up right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. Sorry you couldn't hear the outtakes, but it was fun. Uh, Fergal, let's, let's start with this. Uh, how do you get you know, I'm sitting here, I'm a small company, I have a bunch of intellectual property documents, et cetera. How do I get the best results out of the stuff that I have? Sure. Uh, it's a great question because what, what people don't realize is that the large language model itself, the, the, this engine that I keep talking about that's underpinning generative AI, that is fully baked. You don't train that. It's deployed. It is as it was once the model was finished. So it, in, in the case of generative AI, it's not being trained. So how does it know what to do with your content? Where is that even exposed? There is a pattern in the world of generative AI called RAG, Retrieval Augmented Generation, which allows you to take proprietary data or different data that wasn't the core part of the training data that went into the LLM, and you're effectively combining it. You're almost splicing it 
So what you're in fact doing is you're saying, well, I've got this, you know, thousand past performance documents for the sake of argument, or, you know, 300 resumes or capability statements where I need to use that to help the result be of a more, you know, specific um, quality and relevance to my world. So retrieval augmented generation is a mechanical way in which you can actually take that content and you can basically splice it. And that will then influence the result that comes back from the LLM. So it's kind of a layering process. And it's something that actually has become almost a de facto standard when it comes to that question of understanding proprietary information. I will state though, it's still prone to hallucinations. So the mantra here is you must always, regardless of whether you're using RAG or an LLM on its own, you must always check the results and verify the results. Okay. So let's, let's talk about um, something that you probably do on a fairly regular basis, deploying AI to larger organizations. What are the considerations around the, uh, that process? I think the single biggest question there is what is the nature of the data uh, that you expect to use generative AI for? If the data is in any way proprietary, has export restrictions on it, for instance, has um, personally identifiable information, PII, in it, in the healthcare scenario, that that's a particular concern. Uh, government themselves, that's a particular concern. If that is the case, you simply should not be using any public cloud-based large language model. Examples will be Google Gemini or uh, OpenAI's uh, GPT, the underpinning of ChatGPT. That's a no-no. Most organizations have forbade that uh, and do not allow their employees. Now, what's happening is that people are going off on their own time at home and bypassing this because human beings are human beings and you'll always get that. But they're locked down within the organization. So what do you do in that case? There are, believe it or not, well in excess of 500,000 large language models available. And that's increasing almost exponentially. So I'll repeat that, 500,000. That's only since November of 2022. Well, not only, but largely since that, which was the advent of ChatGPT. And different LLMs are very specialized and can do different things better than others. So for instance, you might have a large language model that is very good at uh, pictures and images. That would be a different type of large language model from one that is very good at summarization of text or creating fresh text. But 500,000 large language models of those, a good number are what's known as permissively licensed. So what that really means is that you can take those large language models and deploy them completely isolated behind the firewall in any organization. And that's either a government or a non-government organization. It doesn't really matter. So most people with a data consideration, when they think about deploying, they should and if they're going to build versus buy, so if they're going to build their own content or receive not content, but engineering stack or build their own products internally, and I'm talking to a number who are doing that, they will be looking at a 100% private large language model deployed behind their firewall. There are two big ones right now. One is called Mistral 7B, 7 billion parameters. And the second is called Llama 2 from Meta, which is Facebook and all that good stuff. 
Uh, they're the kind of head of the pack at the moment, but there's a ton of permissively licensed models that you can use, and they're all pretty capable. They're catching up and almost at uh, the same level of quality as OpenAI's model. Okay, so Google's playing in this area, but unnamed yet? <laughs> no, go- Not Google's on your actually, top list? <laughs> well, well, here's the thing. Well, Gemini is, is the Google-branded uh, model. Okay. Um, okay. And here's a quick segue. Uh, people don't realize this. People, most people think OpenAI are kind of the pioneers of this. It was actually a Google research paper in 2017 that first promoted the idea of generative AI in what's known as a transformer model. So actually, Google invented this. Uh, they were a little concerned about hallucinations and about deploying it because you can imagine if you're a government agency and you have a chatbot in play. In fact, there's a fantastic paper. Uh, the UK government uh, posted a paper about a month or so ago about their experience in trials using chatbots for government departments. And what they found was that the the believability of the content was very high because guess what? It's hosted on the government side. So of course you're going to believe the content, but it was issuing in many cases, hallucination based content, oh actually God. incorrect content. You can imagine, right? So you go yeah. to a government website. So what, so you, there are ways in which you can kind of tie that down. They're not easy. Um, there's a thing called, you know, applying guardrails, which as the name implies narrows the potential uh, badness. But there's a great case just came out the other day. Air Canada had deployed a chatbot, and they, um, unfortunately for them, had to honor a refund on a flight because the chatbot had actually given the wrong information to the person on the other side. And it was in the case of a bereavement, and the chatbot had said, in response to a question, yeah, no problem, you can book your flight and then claim a refund afterwards. And that was not what they actually support or you know, our, our, our business rules that they actually do uh, have in play. So they took it to court. They lost the court case. And um, there you go. So reputational damage is, is a real concern and consideration, and particularly in the government space, it's huge. Yeah, I guess there's a lot of work to be done before these things are uh, even, you know, I don't know. Is it ever going to be totally trustworthy? Um, and that's that's a fantastic question. I think where, where, where it's going, actually, to be honest, again, you can never really predict the future, but there's amazing advancements in, in, the, in, the, in the area of the actual underlying technology and the chip base. Um, you know, NVIDIA currently kind of own the market on, on the GPU side, but there's evolution going on there as well. But equally, what's tending to happen now is that the language models are morphing almost into a hybrid model where basically they're almost a combination of this generative bit and the non-generative bit. So you're going to get the situation where they will evolve. The compute power required will decrease, which is how everything works in technology. Moore's law kicks in, you notice 10x increases of performance in a period of, you know, over years. So you get exponentially better performance you get evolution. So I do think, and sorry, I'm getting a bit techy here, but I do think this will really drive amazing innovation. But I think today we just need to be conscious and cognizant of the core issue of hallucinations when it comes to Gen AI as it stands today. Will it get better? I am absolutely convinced it will. Okay, great. Uh, Fergal, thank you so much for joining me today. This was uh most uh most educational for me i hope for my my listeners as well
Um, you can find Fergal at visiblethread.com. You can find Fergal McGovern on LinkedIn. I suggest you do so. Podcasting is not my day job. I operate at the intersection of thought leadership content and LinkedIn, helping companies and individuals build subject matter expert positions in the federal market to build stronger pipelines. If you'd like to discuss this, drop me a line at markamtower at gmail.com or send me an email through LinkedIn. That's probably a better way to reach me anyway. Please share this podcast with people who will benefit and like it on the podcast platform of your choice. And finally, thank you very much for listening to Amtower Off Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.